Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Hi, everyone. I'm Adam Grant. I'm an organizational psychologist, author. I host the TED podcast, Work Life. And today, I'm thrilled to have a chance to guest host this RSA session. I've had the great pleasure of speaking on the RSA stage in London. I'm a huge supporter of the mission of bringing people and ideas together to solve big problems. And I cannot think of a better person to do that today than Seth Godin. Uh, Seth is an epically popular TED speaker, has written more best-selling books than I can count, uh, Seth has a new book, The Practice, which I'm delighted to have a chance to talk about today. Seth, welcome back to the RSA. Adam, thank you for being here. I know that in a virtual world where we all have 10,000 things to do, you have a lot of choices, but spending time with my friend is a treat, so thank you. Well, that was an easy choice for me. I have to say, though, this book starts in an unusual place, which is it takes me back to the first time that we met, which was on a train. And I asked you what you were up to. And you said, I don't think I'm ever going to write another book again because I ha- I'm just out of ideas. And I'm very glad that you were wrong. But I'm also curious about what happened. Um, I have trouble running out of ideas. But a book, as you know, is a special sort of challenge because we are writing across space and time. And we're doing it for an unknown group of people in an unknown place. The book industry, as we know it, has been transformed. The book industry has as its customer the bookstore, and now the bookstore is gone. And uh, your book doesn't usually interrupt you with an email, but your uh, electronic device does. So for all of those reasons, I had decided that I just couldn't deal with the pain in exchange for the journey. And I was wrong in the sense that the pain is part of the deal, and the pain makes me better. And I needed to write this book for myself as much as for anybody else. Because when I started to lose my practice, I didn't like who I was becoming. And I like the privilege of showing up and doing this work, but you can't coast. You got to figure out how to have a practice to get it done. Well, I've, I've made a lot of bad predictions over the years, but this, this was one that was clear cut to me because <laughs> I, I feel like ever since I became a writer, and I'm sure you've had this experience over and over again too, I, I've had people say, you know, well, well I'm, I'm planning to, to be a writer one day. And my first question is, well, wh- what do you write? And they're like, well, I don't, I don't really write. I'm like, well, that's what a writer is. A writer is a person who writes. And you are clearly a writer, Seth. Uh, you've you've had a practice that many in our field have just frankly marveled at, right? Your your productivity is astonishing. You've been uh, you've been a go-to expert and thought leader on marketing uh, for now an entire generation. Um, so it's hard for me to believe that your practice had ever slipped. What happened? Well, resistance is real. I was talking to our friend Steve Pressfield earlier today. Resistance is that fear that we have that it won't work this time, that we have passed our moment, that uh, people won't get the joke, that we don't have what we need. And one of the things, you know, you mentioned the TED Talks. When I gave my first TED Talk, they hadn't put any of them online. And when they put them online, they didn't ask us first. They just did it. Because uh, Chris knew that we were such egomaniacs that no one would complain and no one did. Uh, But when you're giving a TED Talk, for 300 people, it's different than when you're giving one for 3 million people. The feeling shifts. And for me, what happened was most of the work that I was seeking to do in places like marketing 
I had done. And I didn't want to just do encores. I didn't want to play covers of myself. And so where do you find the, the open territory, the, the, the fresh powder? How do you dive deeper into helping people? And that's why I five years ago started the Akimbo workshops, which are now an independent B Corp. And the idea there was maybe it's more than three hours with a book. Maybe it's a hundred days in community. And one of the workshops we built was about creativity and about getting out of your way and developing a practice. And what I saw was that there was work left to be done. There were things that needed to be said. And it wasn't Seth Godin, the marketer talking. It was Seth Godin, the person who on a good day has a practice talking. And it took me two and a half years to make that workshop. And I, then I got to test it on a thousand people over the course of a hundred days. And I learned a lot from that, which most authors don't get the privilege of doing. So I wrote the book for me and then I wrote the book for them. And now that as long as there's a book, we might as well share it with more people. Well, I'm, I'm envious because I think every author has had the experience of saying, I've just finished my book tour and now I wish I could rewrite the book because now I understand what I was trying to say. And you actually, it sounds like, did the tour before the book. Correct. And it, you know, you've had the luxury of, of teaching in front of people at Wharton for a long time. And you know which lines work and which ones don't because you're, you're working it out every day. And if you're uh, working at home and sitting in front of the computer, sometimes you, you drink your own Kool-Aid or sometimes you don't believe the stuff that works is going to work. Um, and the magic of these workshops is like uh, the, what was the, what's the panopticon? Like the panopticon, the, the prison guard who can see down on everyone, I could watch all of the interactions without being in the room. And that was truly creepy and fascinating at the same time. Well, the, the book is Vintage Godin. Uh, granted, it's, it's a new topic and a new domain for you, but it also brings some of your, your signature strengths to the table. Um, it's full of practical wisdom, right? So I, I felt like reading it, I had multiple aha moments. And sometimes you've given me the language for a practice I already do, but haven't been able to describe. In other cases, you've opened my eyes to a practice that I've never tried. And so I want to dig into the meat of the book a little bit. Tell me, what is the practice? It's actually a series of practices. Right. So it starts with this, that there's no guarantee that any creative work we're going to do is going to work. Uh, the subtitle is ship creative work, because if it doesn't ship, it doesn't count. And too many people die with whatever they have still left inside. Creative, because if it's been done before and there's a manual, it's not creative. And work, because we have to do it even when we don't feel like. And that last part is really important because it undermines this toxic mythology of authenticity, this toxic mythology of, I need to find my calling. Neither one of those things is real. Those were invented fairly recently to explain why we are tired of doing our work because we can't just say my muscles are sore from digging this ditch. It's the other muscles are sore from being on call to do this creative work. But my argument is, even though there's no guarantee, a practice will always get you a better outcome than not having a practice. That showing up on the regular, understanding there's no such thing as writer's block, realizing that you're gonna make mistakes and divorcing the work from the outcome. All of these things add up to create a dynamic of productivity. And I made these things, these are, I call them writer's blocks. They're one and a half inch square. I make them on my laser cutter. It takes three hours to make a set. 
and and they just they just sit here in front of me to remind me of some of the basic principles of how we should deal with criticism, what should we understand about genre, where do we go with trust. So these are all things that if this was plumbing or architecture, someone would have written down already. But for whatever reason, because of the mythology of creativity, no one wrote them down. Well, that, that speaks to something that's that's bothered me about many people's creative practices for a long time, which is I, I feel like a lot of people, they criticize their own work as the creative. And so they can't get out of their own way, right? Every sentence in writing a book gets edited as it's being produced. Every brushstroke on a canvas, right, needs to be adjusted because it's not good enough. Um, and at some point, you lose your creative spark because you're just evaluating as opposed to, to actually building. And I think part of the, the joy of this book is that it helps you get out of your own way. So walk me through how to do that. Well, so maybe examples can get us started. Abby Ryan, who lives not far from you, made her career by painting an oil painting every day. And she did it in public. Uh, she sold them on eBay, 300, 400, 500 bucks, added up, it's a decent living. And now she's a respected grant winning tenure track professor because making an oil painting every day doesn't give you a lot of chances to get blocked. And what people are doing when they're editing themselves too much is they're sanding off all of the edges, even though they are not competent at that part of the work. The work that they are competent at in this moment is doing the first draft. And the first draft is different than the last draft. The other example is my friend, the late Isaac Asimov. Um, and I worked with him on a project a long time ago. Isaac published 400 books back when that was hard. And um, it's still hard for the record well, for most with, of us mere mortals. With the Kindle, you just press go and no one had to say yes, right? Um, and I said, Isaac, how did you do that? And he showed me the manual typewriter in his little apartment near Lincoln Center. And he said, every morning I sit in front of this typewriter and from 6.30 to noon I type and then I'm done. And it doesn't matter if it's good writing or not. I just have to type. Because the subconscious in that moment says, well, if I have to type, I might as well type something good. <laughs> and even though most of his stuff wasn't good, six hours a day of productivity was enough to produce four, uh, four, 400 books. So what I'm saying to people, regardless of whether you're a, a, you know, a, a, an eye surgeon or somebody who's trying to write a kid's book, is we compartmentalize the parts of the practice. And if we say, I have this bucket and I have to fill it up with ideas, or I have to fill it up with words, or I have to fill it up with this skill or that skill, then we don't, we have to put ourselves on the spot and we don't end up saying, I'm hiding now. So let's, let's go through the compartments then. Uh, it sounds like idea generation is at the beginning of the process. Do you, other than, than just having a, you know, a target or an amount to fill, what are your other favorite practices in that realm? Well, I think that we might get stuck waiting for a really good idea. And the number of super original ideas in the world that we're glad came along is very, very small. So if I think about something like Warby Parker, to bring up a sore topic, Warby, Warby Parker is not an original idea. They didn't invent eyeglasses. They didn't invent e-commerce. But what they were able to do was understand genre. 
And genre is the box our idea is going to fit in. And there are very few successful creative ideas that don't fit in any box. The box is not a trap, it's a platform. And if you have domain knowledge, if you've done the reading, if you understand what has come before, you can decide which genre you wish to inhabit. That's not a crutch, that's a requirement. And so once we know the form, once we have an idea of who it's for and what's it for, now we can start doing something that is productive. And again, we're going to do it wrong on the way to doing it right, but at least we're not a wandering generality. We're a meaningful specific, as Zig used to say, and being meaningful puts us on the hook. And so early in the book, I talk about being on the hook, which I love being on the hook, but so many people have been brainwashed to not be on the hook. Yeah, I think that's great advice. And it, it certainly tracks with the, the evidence we have in psychology that sometimes quantity is the best path to quality. Right? If, you can, if you can just generate a big enough haystack, you're probably going to find a needle in it. Uh, but that also goes to one of the challenges, which is evaluating our own ideas. So at some point you have to decide, okay, I just created a first draft. Is this something worth refining into a final draft? Is this something worth eventually shipping? And uh, I have a former student, Justin Berg, who's found that we are notoriously bad judges of our own ideas. Um, sometimes we throw them out the window too soon, but maybe even more often we fall in love with garbage. And I think anybody who's watched Shark Tank or Dragon's Den, there's that moment at the end of the show when all five sharks have, or dragons have rejected the idea and said, this is terrible. I forbid you to ever pursue this. And then the camera cuts in close and the entrepreneur says, oh, but I know better. And this is going to be the next hit. And it just breaks my heart to watch that happen. What, what can you share with us about how to avoid those moments and how to know if our ideas really have potential? So criticism is a skill and most people aren't very good at it. That learning to become good at giving incisive feedback is a practice in itself. And most people around us aren't very good. And you are probably not good at doing it for yourself. And, you know, it's interesting. Um, some of the sharks are terrible at it and they're just amusing. But if you can find somebody who actually has that experience and is good at it, it's gold. And we need to seek those people out to reward them, to embrace them because they're the ones that are gonna help us figure out what is worth bringing forward and what's not. Not your job right now. Your job right now is to make the work, not decide whether to publish the work. Now in the internet world, there are no filters anymore. You wanna put it on YouTube, you can put it on YouTube. And so we have this challenge of, if there is no one to applaud me and no one to uh, criticize me, how will I learn from this? And that's where the idea of the smallest viable audience comes in, of figuring out which group, you know, so your colleague Dan Ariely's work with the Bionicles has stuck with me for a long time where they pay some college students, apparently are the only people in psychology experiments, but they pay these college students to put together Bionicles. And then they sit in front of the investigator and the investigator is taking them apart while they're putting them together. Students who will watch their bionicles ripped to pieces are much less likely to sign up to do more than ones who are simply watch their pieces get put carefully into a box. It's an inherent form of criticism to have someone tear your bionicle apart. 
So we have to be super careful. Who are we bringing this to? And this early in my career was a huge problem for me because the circle of people who could look at my ideas before I invested the next cycle were incompetent at giving feedback. And I listened to them and I was heartbroken and disheartened and all the words with heart in them. And it was only when I found my colleague, Michael Cater and a couple other people that I got good feedback. So yeah, we need to be in the right circle of people, the right circle of people who say yes when they should say yes and who say no when they should say they should say no. That's helpful. And you know, I think one of the things that that's striking to me about that guidance is it feels like in a lot of cases, people end up, you know, we've we've all seen versions of, okay, you only gravitate toward your yes men and your yes women. Uh, who cheerleaded? Who cheerleaded for you? Or on the the flip, you only go to your harshest critics who tear your work apart too soon. And so your guidance, it sounds like, is to find the people who see your potential but also are willing to tell you the truth. So let's think about John Hammond for a second, who doesn't get nearly enough credit. Try to imagine someone who, in one career, discovered Benny Goodman, Aretha Franklin, Bob Dylan, and Bruce Springsteen. One guy. Right? So what does it mean to be in the music business for 50 years and discover those people? Well, he had good taste. What does it mean to have good taste? It means you know what the audience wants 10 minutes before they do. And I actually spent a month of my life trying to chase a definition of good taste. I couldn't find one on the internet, so I made that up. But it really resonates with me to know what the audience wants 10 minutes before they do. And he could turn to Dylan or Springsteen or Aretha Franklin and say, when you go this way, it's more likely to accomplish what you want than when you go that way. And every once in a while, someone comes along who has good taste about their own work. But in my experience, that person is usually uh, nonverbal in their narrative about it. So I, I interviewed Diane von Furstenberg years ago. And she developed the wrap dress, which got her on the cover of Newsweek magazine. It was the most successful thing of its kind. And then the rest of her career, she just relied on this inherent good taste. And almost all the time she was wrong because she couldn't describe it in a way that other people could hear whether she was being true to her, her compass, right? And I think learning to put words behind your good taste is super rare and a worthwhile thing if you hope to give yourself or others feedback. So a couple of reactions. First, I love your definition of good taste, uh, knowing what the, the audience wants 10 minutes before they do. I think that's so compelling. And I think we could even judge meta taste by whether people recognize that as a good definition of taste. Uh, <laughs> so, second thing I'd say is this idea of translating your taste into words. Um, another way I might think about that is, is basically trying to make your intuition more conscious as opposed to subconscious. Well um, I've, I've always thought about intuition as subconscious pattern recognition. And whenever people say, follow your intuition or trust your gut, no, maybe you should, you should articulate your intuition, figure out whether the patterns behind it that you recognized in the past are relevant to the present situation. And there's, a, there's actually a term for this in psychology. Um, it's called referential processing, uh, which is basically the, the ability to translate images into words more or less and vice versa. 
So like a great art critic has amazing referential processing because they can look at a painting and then they can, they can describe with language, okay, here's what, you know, what emotion that evokes and here's why the artist's choices will do that. I have zero ability to do that. Apparently I am all verbal uh, and I can look at a painting and say, uh, yes, I like the colors in it. <laughs> I, have, I have no, no ability to deconstruct it. And you are one of the people who just excels at referential processing. Uh, I think it's been one of the, the gifts that's really propelled a lot of your work is you take things that resonate with people visually and you explain them verbally. Can you teach me how to do that? <laughs> or can you walk me through what your practice is for doing that? Well, you're very kind and I love and, this. And actually Seth, if, if you want a concrete example, I, I'd love to hear how you came up with that definition of taste even because it, it, it fits the bill. This is um, a brilliant riff on your part, referential processing. Um, I'm just gonna take enormous uh, angry uh, exception with your word gift, because it, um, uh, Cory Doctorow says, uh, we call it a gift when the person who has a skill doesn't realize they've been working on it for a really long time, um, because it's not a gift, it's a skill and it's learnable. And the way we learn it is by practicing it poorly until we can do it better the way we learn every other skill. So I grew up uh, with amazing parents and my mom was the first woman on the board of the Albright Knox Art Museum in Buffalo, which is generally considered the best uh, contemporary art museum in America, painting for painting. So I grew up looking at Max Bill and Jackson Pollock's and Moreau and everybody else. Um, and what a docent is trained to do is tell a story about a work of art and to tell a story in a way that triggers our conscious programming in addition to our subconscious, because then it locks in. And you know, when I used to go on the road and give talks, my slides, 150 slides in one presentation, no words on any of them, because the picture goes to one part of your brain, my words go to the other part of your brain, they lock together. So in the case of the good taste example, I knew I needed to be able to teach the people in the workshop what it meant to have bad taste because I thought a lot of their failure was due to the fact that they were in love with something that they had made and nobody else was. And they needed to not take it personally. They needed to see what the audience was seeing. And so I tried 15, 20, 25 different ways to do it. And they failed until I stumbled on one that didn't fail. And I rarely get something right out of the gate. What I have is a practice that says education and learning are about using words and images to change people's minds. Let me keep throwing things at this until I figure out what's going to decode this problem for them. And I think that, you know, all someone has to do is read two pages of one of your books to see you do exactly the same thing. Well, I, I appreciate the sentiment. I will try to earn it, but I, I think you're right to take issue with my use of the term gift. I think you're right, it's a skill. At the same time though, I think there's something about the language of gift that's also liberating. It's a little bit like the way Liz Gilbert talks about you know, how, how now we say someone is a genius and we used to say that they have a genius. Right. I think when you, when you tell someone they have a gift for something, um, it, it frees them from the pressure uh, to, to have to be able to, to effortfully produce it. And it signals that in fact, maybe you've worked on it your whole life, uh, but now you, I've seen you do it uh, multiple times, right? Uh, there are times when you can just do it on command. 
Um, and even though it took you a long time to build up that capability, right? It's, I think it's a gift now. Can you, well, can you I, live with that definition? I can, as long as you're willing to put every single seven-year-old in the gifted and talented class at school. That's fair. Right? Because I don't want to take it away from anybody. I don't want to say to anybody, you can't do this because you don't have the gift. Yeah. No, I think, I think that's exactly right. So tell me, Ben, you, you say something really interesting in the book, uh, something that at first I bristled at. Uh, and as I thought about it more, I said, damn it, he's... I think he's right. Uh, you said that, that basically creating a practice for shipping creative work is not just an opportunity, it's an obligation. And I hated the idea of being obligated to anything, right? I, I come from a land where freedom is a quintessential value. And the moment anyone tells me I have to do anything, I wanna do something else. And yet the more I thought about it, the more I thought, you know, I am letting down a lot of people, but especially myself, if I don't, see through or live up to my potential. So tell me more about that idea of obligation and why you wanted to make that argument, knowing I imagine that it's difficult for people like me to swallow. Yeah, there's only one hack in the whole book because I'm not a big fan of hacks. And the hack is we have good, I'm glad, thrilled, and aversion to hustling other people. We don't want to call people at home on their phone at night, in the middle of the night to sell them insurance. We don't want to close talk somebody, uh, you know, as they walk down the street. Good. I'm really glad about that. <laughs> and so a lot of people hesitate to ship their creative work because they don't want to hustle because they say, I don't like marketing. I don't want to pitch my work. If I could just find somebody else, let the editor do it. And then, and then I'm done. Right. Well, what if we turned it upside down and said, lifeguards aren't hustling people when they rescued them when they're drowning. Nobody who's a lifeguard says, ah, I don't think I should jump in. They, they might want to drown. No, they, they're, they're drowning. You go rescue them. It's a generous act. And that makes it much easier to jump in the water because you're not jumping in the water for you. You're jumping in the water for them. And so I think by my definition of creative work, which is something human that will make something better for someone else, it's a generous act. Well, if you're a citizen, we have lots of things that we say to citizens in a free society are their obligations because our culture, our community works because we are obligated to one another. I think I Ayn Rand was a fool. And the way that she is interpreted by many that being short-term selfish is the way to go makes no sense to me. I think that we're communitarians. And if you are in community, then you have an obligation. And your obligation is if you have something to say or do or ship or paint or create that will make things better for other people, you shouldn't hold it back. This may be a matter of semantics, but part of me wondered if it's, if it's easier to get people on board with the idea of a responsibility than an obligation. Uh, an obligation <laughs> feels like I have no choice. A responsibility feels like I wanna make the choice to do the right thing. I've written it down. We'll change it in the next edition. Great, great point. <laughs> no, I, I have to say from a rhetorical standpoint, I like your, your decision better because it really forced me to wrestle with this, right? And if you had said it's my responsibility, I would have said, yeah, you're probably right. Uh, and I, I enjoyed having to, you know, to, to really grapple with it a little bit. So uh, I, I wouldn't back off on challenging people. Uh, it, was just, it was just something I wondered about. Um, 
I, I have another question that, that relates a little bit to this dynamic, which is there is a, a fascinating mix of, I would say, encouraging and challenging um, in, in this book. And I think this is another theme that runs through your work. Um, you know, on the one hand, you're telling people, look, writer's block is a myth, right? You don't need to, you don't need to be held back by that. On the other hand, you need to show up every day and do the work. So, you know, what are you, what are you doing, right? Get, get focused, get committed. How do you figure out where, when you're coaching people, when you're advising people, when you're trying to motivate people in your life, where to draw the line there? So, you know, we learned a lot building Akimbo out the way that we did because the workshops are difficult. They're not like you to me where you watch a bunch of videos. And what I discovered is the word enrollment, that education happens because you're trading a certificate for compliance. But learning happens when someone is enrolled in the journey. You know that the person who stays after class is way more likely to learn something than the person who raises their hand and says, will this be on the test? Someone says, will this be on the test? Joke's over, right? And so I made the decision a long time ago not to coach or consult for money. But if I'm talking to someone I care about, I can tell pretty quickly how enrolled are they in the journey. And if they're not that enrolled, then my job is sort of to reassure them, even though I don't believe in reassurance. But if they're enrolled, just like at CrossFit, blisters are on the agenda and blisters are part of the deal. So do you really want to get from here to there? Because I'm happy to describe to you what I see ahead of you, but it's going to be something you need to lean into, not something where I can show you an easy path. That resonates. It reminds me of a, an Islet Fishbach set of experiments where the basic question is when, when you're trying to motivate yourself or somebody else to, to do something, do you focus on how much progress has already been made or how much progress there is left to go? And they basically found that it depends on the degree of enrollment or, or commitment. Uh, so if somebody is already committed, you highlight the gap, right? And you say, you've got a long road ahead of you. And then they're, they're going to double down. Whereas if somebody's wavering, if they're not sure they're engaged or they're on board with the idea, you let them know they've already put in plenty of effort and they've gone part of the way. So, you know, might as well keep going. That, that sounds very aligned with the way you've thought about it. That's, I had not heard that before. I couldn't even guess where you were going with it. I think that's very cool. <laughs> well, speaking of guessing, I have to ask you, Seth, uh, we share a hobby, which is being magicians. Uh, that has been a practice since you were a kid, if I remember correctly. You know, I, I love, I mean, what, what kind of author would just keep cards at his Not just desk? cards, not just cards, cards with my cover on them. Oh, even better. You designed every, a deck of cards around the card has a has a slogan from the book and... Spoiler alert, don't listen if you're not a magician. It's a stripper deck. Just saying. <laughs> so you're going to be able to find the card of choice at a moment's notice. I love it. Here, here I thought we were just going to get a regular flourish. But no, you gave us, you gave us the practice as a deck. Tell me from, from your years practicing magic, what you learned about, um, about creativity in that realm that's transferred over to other work you've done. Okay, so... Um, do you, are you a Penguin Magic customer? I have been at many points in my life. Okay, so I have a, a trick that may or may not show up on Penguin Magic. I think it will. I've made the video for them. And what it's about is wonder, which is a riff I got from a guy named Harris III. Wonder 
is something that we all want as human beings. And wonder in the world of magic tricks is regularly trampled upon by people who yell out, I know how you did that, right? So, oh, there was wonder for a moment. And then we did everything in our power intellectually to make it go away. And I think that adjacency to wonder is one of the most wonderful, magical things a human can do. And so the thing about penguin magic is the way they make money is they show you a trick. And the only way to make the wonder go away is to buy it. And that's how they make a living. And so I did, I, I, I made a, a video for this and executed the trick fairly poorly and said, you already know how I did it. That's not the question. The question is, can we talk about making wonder in the world around you? And so what I've learned, I've taught magic to a lot of kids is the kid who wants to yell out, I know how you did that, has a long way to go to finding a journey toward wonder. And I don't wanna know how it's done. I like living with that gap in between what I know and what is in front of us. I can still function as a civilized human being with a little bit of wonder in my life. And I think most human beings would agree that we've probably gone too far to stamping it out. And that really great magic with or without playing cards is about how did I, how can I bring a little bit of wonder back to the world? I think that's so interesting because there's, it seems like a tension between maintaining the wonder and also cultivating curiosity, yeah. right? So when I, when I think about the George Lowenstein view of curiosity as an itch you have to scratch, right? The, the, the question mark in your knowledge where you desperately want the answer or the insight. Um, there's a part of me that thinks, you know, that's, that's part of why I became a psychologist, right? As, as a kid, you know, wanting to know the answer to magic tricks and reading them in books. I had that same feeling when, you know, when I was learning about psychology and trying to figure out, okay, what can we better understand about how the mind works? Do you think it's possible to maintain wonder while still scratching the curiosity itch? Oh yeah, because I think curiosity is about journey. That there's almost no one who's only curious about one thing that as soon as the curious person finds out one thing, they quickly decide to go after the next thing. You know, if you read uh, David Deutsch's last couple books, which will blow the top of your head off, as soon as he has the answer to something like Hilbert's Hotel, the next chapter, he's back at being in the curious business again. And so I think one of the part of the hedonic treadmill of magic is you get release from the tension and then two minutes later, you can go be back on the treadmill. Yeah, yeah, and that's a, that's a very nice resolution. Tell me also then from a, a magic perspective, uh, the, a lot of the practice is, is pretty boring compared to the astonishment of the trick, right? I, I know a lot of magicians who love to perform and they hate to practice. Uh, do you have any, any guidance or insight about how to bring intrinsic motivation into an activity that lacks it? Because I think that's that's at the heart of, of why a lot of people struggle with the practice. You know, it's funny. Um, for the last 10 or so books I did, the worst day was the day I found out it was a bestseller of the whole journey. Why? Because I, it's not why I wrote it. And it's when I, I still remember the day someone came and handed me a piece of paper in the middle of a conference that uh, a book exceeded expectations. And I actually started to cry 
because nothing happened for me. I got no joy out of the news. And I realized that that spot of my quest, the ego part of it had been extinguished and I wasn't going to have it again. And that this idea, do you know who I am? Um, <laughs> never makes us feel better, right? The person who's had a TED talk that's been seen 3 million times and doesn't know why it hasn't been seen 4 million times. That's like, it's not going to make us better. And so when I talk to people, like, why does Bob Dylan live in a bus? The guy has $200 million in the bank and a Nobel prize. He lives in a bus to get to the next gig because for him, it's not about, I won. It's about, I get to play. So if you want to get to play, I have really good news, which is you get to play, you don't have to win. But if you want to win, I have bad news, which is you're probably not going to win. And the only way to get there is to do the work anyway. This is like the Joe Heller, Kurt Vonnegut story about I've, I've gotten one thing, the, the rich person will never have the knowledge that I've got enough. Yeah, exactly. I wonder though, if you're being too harsh on, on the person who celebrates the bestseller, because in the world of creativity, we have very poor measures of impact, right? I, there are days when I think, look, if, if we were doctors, we would know when we're saving lives, right? If we were engineers, we would know when we, we built a product that somebody really directly benefited from. Um, in the creative world, impact is much more ambiguous. And so I think sometimes bestseller is a signal to people, hey, you know what? That work actually was useful to someone or people took an interest. Uh, is that all ego or is that just, for me, it feels like I just want to know that my time is well spent. I, I don't know if it's an ego thing, but I think it's not, at least for me, helpful. I don't think oncologists are significantly worse at being a doctor than podiatrists, but oncologists have a lot of patients who die. And uh, if you want to write a New York Times bestseller, give me $80,000. I'll show you how you can buy a slot on the list. Right, It's not hard at all because the list is corrupt. So easily measured metrics, whether someone died or you made a list, I find really shallow because you can do really great work and only a thousand people bought that book because it didn't hit the slipstream right or it came out on the same day as Barack Obama's book, right? Um, and so instead for me, it's show me one person show me one person who you turned a light on and who they turned a light on. I wanna be measured by what the people who learned from me taught other people. And I feel like that's a network effect that I could be proud of. But I fired publicly the New York Times a long time ago because I didn't want to be attached to an outcome that I knew how to game because I'm a good marketer. I know how to make a book that is more, gonna sell more copies than this one, much to my publisher's chagrin. But that's not what, I'm not in the cutting down trees business. I'm in the, did I find something for the people I seek to serve business? And I think the same thing is true for a palliative care physician where every single patient is gonna die. They gotta measure the right thing. I think that's beautiful. It, it reminds me of something I found in, in my early research in grad school, that if, if you looked at people's perceptions that their jobs made a difference, the depth of impact was much more important than the breadth, right? It was, it was not how many people am I, am I helping? It's how much, am I, how much good am I doing for each person that I have the privilege to help? And it, it seems like that's, that's your compass. And I think to let you off the hook a little bit, it's yours too. Because I've seen what your students have said about you. And I've seen, you know, when, they, when the RSA says, hey, Adam, you want to do something like this? You don't, you're not 
keeping score of some easily measured metric. You're saying I'm in community and this is a thing that I'd like to do. What a privilege we all have. We don't dig ditches for a living. And we have this internet thing. And instead of watching cat videos, we're trying to make something better with it. And we won't have this moment for long, but as long as we have the moment, I think we need to lean into it. I think so too, Seth. Well, it's been, it's been such a delight to have a chance to talk with you as always. Uh, I think the, the practice is, is such a great, I, I dare I say gift to the world of both creative people who struggle to ship their work, but also people who don't realize that they're creative and do have a responsibility, maybe even an obligation to share their ideas with the world. And I think you've done us all a great service by, by bringing that gift to us. Thank you, Professor. Such a privilege to talk to you. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews, and animations.